Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit the Harry S. Truman Little White House in Key West. Each November, December, and February and March, the president would take up residence, sometimes for a week, sometimes several weeks, sometimes a month at a time. We'll discuss early 20th century ornithologist Frank Chapman, at a very early age, he was fascinated with bird life, and he would go out on these trips and understand and listen to bird songs and record his observations. And talk about preserving history at the University of Central Florida through soundscaping. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. My fellow Americans, I'm happy to have this opportunity to talk to you once more before I leave the White House. Next Tuesday, General Eisenhower will be inaugurated as President of the United States. A short time after the new President takes his oath of office, I will be on the train going back home to Independence, Missouri. I will once again be a plain private citizen of this great republic. That is as it should be. Inauguration Day will be a great demonstration of our democratic process. I'm glad to be a part of it. Glad to wish General Eisenhower all possible success as he begins his term. Glad the whole world will have a chance to see how simply and how peacefully our American system transfers this vast power of the presidency from my hands to his. It is a good object lesson in democracy. I'm very proud of it, and I know you are too. That's President Harry During S. Truman giving months, his farewell address I've to the people of America on January 15, 1953. Truman's presidency saw the end of World War II with the use of atomic weapons on Japan, the founding of the United Nations, the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe, the start of the Cold War with the Soviet Union, and the racial integration of the military and federal agencies. During his presidency, Truman spent nearly six months working from what is now called the Harry S. Truman Little White House in Key West. Bob Wools is executive director of the Harry S. Truman Little White House Museum, which was originally constructed in 1890. The house originally was built as the first Navy officer's quarters on our submarine base, and it was built as a duplex for the paymaster and for the commandant. It, it was converted into a single dwelling from a duplex in 1911, and it became officially the Little White House in 1946 when President Truman started using it extensively as a vacation venue and working White House. The first president to use the Little White House was William Howard Taft. Being a Navy base, we've had a number of presidents use it, seven in total, ranging from William Howard Taft back in 1912, who came by via Flagler's Railroad and then sailed from Key West to Panama to see the building of the canal. He was very instrumental in building the Panama Canal, making eight trips there as Secretary of War and then as President of the United States. But then we've also had Presidents Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, 
since then, we've had uh, President Carter here on two different occasions, and Bill and Hillary Clinton came and spent the weekend with us. So it's an ongoing venue that's used by presidents. Although the Truman Little White House operates as a museum with guided tours 365 days a year, Bob Wools says there are still private areas. There are private quarters which, quite frankly, are not too historic. They have antique furniture and flat screen TVs, so we don't include that in the tour. And that's where uh, visiting dignitaries come and stay. Seven presidents have stayed at the Little White House, but it bears the name of Harry S. Truman because he was the one who most fully utilized the facility while in office, spending 175 days in Key West. It's somewhat unique. Uh, the only uh, location quite similar to this would be Camp David. Uh, in our case, Harry Truman in 1946 had a hacking cough. He was running the country almost single-handedly. There was no vice president. And he had attempted several vacations unsuccessfully, and he had given up on a vacation venue at all. And Admiral Nimitz spoke up and offered the former commandant's house because he had moved to smaller quarters, so this 9,000-square-foot house was sitting empty. Truman came for one week, was highly impressed with all the top-secret research the Navy was doing, and promised whenever he got tired he would be back, and it took him all of 12 weeks to get back. So each November, December, and February and March, the president would take up residence, sometimes for a week, sometimes several weeks, sometimes a month at a time, and the staff grew proportional. They went from 16 in 1946 to almost 59 in uh, 1949, and they were spending a month at a time and literally running the country from, America, from Key West, Florida. Uh, the president would receive mail pouches every day or every other day, containing legislation, correspondence, letters, books that he'd requested, and he actually was enacting legislation from this site. And it uniquely all reads, the White House, U.S. Naval Station, Key West, Florida. So Harry Truman is our first president to realize where the president is, there the White House is. While working at the Little White House in Key West, President Truman signed documents that would advance civil rights, help lead to the creation of Israel, and result in the firing of General Douglas MacArthur. Bob Wools explains that Franklin Delano Roosevelt stayed at the Little White House both before and during his presidency. Franklin Roosevelt came multiple times prior to his presidency. Uh, amongst them, in the 20s, his doctor informed him that warm water and sunshine would be a cure for polio, and so he spent the winters of 1922, 23, 24, 25, and 26 here in the Florida Keys and actually spent six nights as a guest of our commandant in this house uh, seeking a cure for polio, and that's all prior to Warm Springs, Georgia. Uh, he re did return as President of the United States in 1939, having driven down U.S. 1, he wanted to see the great new overseas highway that had just been built on Flagler's right away. So we've had, he would be technically our second president to use the site. Key West is closer to Cuba than to most of Florida. John F. Kennedy spent time at the Little White House during a crucial time in U.S. history when tensions with Cuba were at their height. Kennedy came first in uh, March of 1961 and had a one-day summit meeting with British Prime Minister Harold McMillan. Officially, the meeting has to do with Laos, and it's certainly the beginning of the Vietnam War. It is highly possible, but we are haunted by this proximity to the fact that 23 days later was the U.S.-led invasion of Cuba known as the Bay of Pigs. So that would have been Kennedy's first active use of the House, 
And then a, a year later, of course, Russian missiles were discovered in Cuba, and Key West was, became an armed camp overnight. Tourism died, and even though the crisis passed, tourists did not return. And so in November of 1962, John Kennedy came down, awarded some commendations and medals, and basically it was a goodwill mission to tell people it was safe to return to Key West, come on down and spend some tourist dollars. Since the Harry S. Truman Little White House opened as a museum in 1990, Jimmy Carter has had two family reunions there, and Bill and Hillary Clinton came for a weekend getaway. In the past, the house has hosted other important guests, including scientist and inventor Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison actually stayed in what we call our VIP quarters. He and his son Theodore lived here off and on, but mostly on, for almost six months' time, uh, late 1917 through 1918. And he was the head of the Navy Consulting Board at the time. They were perfecting 41 different weapons. Some, much of the research was done in Key West, but he did travel back and forth to Long Island and do some additional research up there. But Key West really gets the, to the bulk of the, the credit for that, uh, that experimentation time. And he was very disappointed in the Navy having perfected all these weapons. They said, we're at peace, we don't need them now. So he was not a happy camper. In addition to serving as a presidential retreat and a working alternate White House, the Harry S. Truman Little White House has been the site for important peace talks. The most recent, which was a very high-profile event, was in April of 2001. Colin Powell chose this as the site for international peace talks between the governments of Azerbaijan and Armenia. And for about a week, we had two foreign presidents, their entire cabinets, and about 100 delegates uh, working towards an eventual treaty, and both sides were very excited about the progress that was, was achieved here, and it was very sad for us when they went home. Both sides were told, you gave away too much, and so even to this day, the treaty still does not exist. So that, that's been a, a combat area of disputed territory for almost a thousand years. Despite its distinguished history, Bob Wools says that the Harry S. Truman Little White House fell into disrepair in the 1980s and was almost lost. It came under state ownership in 1987. A private developer had bought it after the Navy had, had uh, closed the base. We had switched in 1974 from diesel submarines to nuclear subs, and they were simply too large for Key West Harbor. When that occurred, it was assumed that we would open as a, either a state or a county museum. And unfortunately, the politicians fought over free land and no one would be in agreement. And so the building sat uh, deteriorating very severely over the next 12 years. And then it was sold along with 100 other buildings and 100 other acres in, in private development. Fortunately for us, Bob Graham, our governor, intervened and traded some development rights in exchange for the Little White House, and so we are owned by the governor and cabinet of Florida as a trust property held for the benefit of the people of the world. And our not-for-profit has raised in excess of a million and a half dollars just in the last seven years. Almost all of it, $100 checks, $50 checks from a very grassroots effort to uh, preserve and protect this property. Today, the Harry S. Truman Little White House is refurbished and decorated as it was during Truman's presidency. Our collections are about anywhere from 85 to 95 percent, depending on the room, original. So this is a very, very high uh, percentage of original artifacts. Amongst them, probably the most iconic images 
would be the president's poker table that was made as a gift for him from the Navy cabinet shop, and also the president's piano and presidential desk where he ran the country. So those are kind of important things that people seek out when they're, they're touring the house. From the magazines on coffee tables to the prints on the walls to the glasses behind the bar, walking through the Harry S. Truman Little White House is like stepping back in time to 1949. The biggest artifact is the house itself. The, the house is a rectangular white frame building made of longleaf southern pine. Those of us here in, in the furthest most point of Florida call it Dade County Pine. If you're in Georgia and Carolina, you would probably call it hard pine or heart pine, but it was the native forest of America. So the building is extremely old uh, pine, and it's very, very durable. Uh, it's rectangular, covered in louvers, which were erected to keep the sun, the western sun, from beating in and heating the house up too much. And so it, it has an iconic look all by itself. It's, it's more louver than windows. Uh, Today, these are all glassed in to keep the air conditioning in, and we are, do have a high-tech air conditioning system to, perfect, to protect all of the artifacts. But then you get into the house, and it has been faithfully restored to March of 1949. Uh, the president started coming in November of 46, and it was rather deteriorated. It had been used as the Navy commander's house all those years, and no great amount of money had been poured into it. In, November, uh, in January of 1949, the Navy hired Haygood Lassiter, the premier interior decorator of Miami Beach in those days, gave him $35,000 to furnish the house suitable for the guests the president would be having. And so while it's not custom-made, it was high-end furniture for the time, almost all of it, uh, Henrodon or Drexel Heritage and that kind of furniture. Um, for many of our visitors, this is a trip down memory lane they walk in and they go, my mom had that table, my aunt had that dresser, my you know, grandmother had that break front or something. So they, they can feel very much at home in the house. Um, and while it is 9,000 square feet and the rooms are very spacious, it still has the, the comforts of being a 1950 home. And uh, we have lovingly found and restored the fabrics. The wallpaper after seven years was reprinted and is known now as the Little White House. It's a, a um, New England toile, actually, that the decorator specified, and after seven years of copyright search, it is being reproduced as the Little White House toile. So it is kind of a unique thing to this house. Uh, we did a paint analysis, so every bit of the paint throughout the house is perfectly matched to the, the time frame. And even our carpets have all been replaced with 55-ounce wool carpet. So it's a very luxurious home in many ways and yet it's certainly not overwhelming. Our visitors, especially our international visitors, are always surprised at how homey it is, how, how ordinary, if you like, it is, that it is not palatial, it is not uh, glitzy, it's certainly not Washington, and it's certainly not Versailles or any of the, the palaces that the rest of the world looks on and their leadership is having. So it is a very comfortable home. Bob Wools is executive director of the Harry S. Truman Little White House in Key West and co-author with Barbara Hayo of the book Presidents in Paradise, The Legacy of the Harry S. Truman Little White House.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, when someone mentions ornithologists in Florida, perhaps the first person to come to mind is John James Audubon, but another great ornithologist also spent a lot of time in Florida too, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. Frank M. Chapman is really considered the father of modern ornithology, at least in the 20th century. And uh, he spent quite a bit of time in Florida. first came here in the early 1880s. He and his uh, mother actually settled in the Gainesville region. She decided to make Gainesville her winter home. And a lot of that had to do with her young son's fascination with birds. At a very, very early age, where Chapman grew up, which was actually in North New Jersey, between New Jersey and New York City, he was fascinated with bird life. And he would go out on these trips and understand and listen to bird songs and record his observations. So he wasn't actually a classically trained scientist. In fact, he worked for the New York Stock Exchange up until his early 20s, and then one day decided he wanted to pursue ornithology as a career. So he spent just about every winter of his life in Florida from about 1888 until he died in the 1940s. He was 81 years old and was still working in the fields, recording the life and habitat, and was working to preserve a lot of habitat, specifically in Florida, for Florida's very, very diverse bird life. So he understood that uh, really early on in the 19th century and pursued that cause, along with a lot of other, what would become kind of these conservationists, or what we would call the conservationist movement. He was a big part of that, but he was first and foremost an ornithologist, and he was fascinated with recording the life of the varied species of birds in Florida. And Frank Chapman was a prolific writer, and you have here one of his books from 1908. Yeah, what we're looking at is a really well-preserved first edition, first printing of one of Frank Chapman's books. And this was really his first full-length volume, and it's called Camps and Cruises of an Ornithologist. And the first thing that hits you is just the striking cover. You can see this really beautiful relief of a pink flamingo on a green cover with the gold you know, writing and lettering of the rest of the book. And the book isn't entirely dedicated to his trips to Florida, but there are several chapters specifically about his adventures and his time spent in wintering in Florida. And he pays a lot of attention to a couple of species that were really suffering quite substantially during that time period. One was the brown pelican, which often we think of now as being a, a very prolific species. It's, it's all over the state. But at the time, their nurseries or their rookeries where the birds were laying their nests, they were being destroyed. They were being destroyed really by fishermen, commercial fishermen, who felt that the pelicans were competing with the commercial fishermen. So he was really working to understand their life cycle and then present that information in a way that would help preserve their environment. Now, later on, a lot of his articles dealt with preservation of entire areas of Florida, specifically the Everglades. He spent a lot of time, along with people like Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and these other conservationists, in the Everglades trying to understand the complexities of such a biodiverse region and bring that information to the public so that Floridians and Americans in general could understand how important it was to preserve these environments and also preserve the, the bird life living there. I'll read just quickly from one of his descriptions when he came to Florida. This is in 1908. He said here, quote, 
In addition to its southern position, Florida's numberless lakes, extensive bayous, marshes, and shallow shores abounding in food, its cypress swamps, willow heads, and mangroves suitable for nesting have made it an ideal home for those aquatic birds which nest in colonies, in trees, in bushes, preferably in water. Of these birds, herons, egrets, ibises, spoonbills, and others, the state once possessed a marvelous store. But be it said to Florida's everlasting disgrace that until the honorable industry of shooting birds at their nests become no longer profitable, she raised no hand to save herself from being despoiled of this rich heritage, unquote. So that's just an idea of, in 1908 even, his efforts to try and preserve not only the, the birds in Florida, but also these very diverse and unique environments. Now, without the work of people like Chapman, it's very likely Florida's natural environment would look very different today, right? That's absolutely right. And as we've been talking about, he was a prolific writer. He wrote dozens of scientific papers, dozens of books as well, including Camps and Cruises, of which we're looking at the copy today. And it's those publications that help to awaken the public to the plight of these bird rookeries and the natural environments in Florida. He was writing up until, in fact, his last paper was published in 1943 in one of these Audubon publications. He died in 1945. He was in his late 70s, early 80s, and he was still working to try and, and understand the complexities of uh, bird life in Florida, but also try and bring that to the public's attention. And in turn, that really helped to save what is now the Everglades National Park and several other state parks and, and a string of wildlife refuges and natural areas throughout Florida. Well, another fascinating document from the collection, Ben. Thanks. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. To see Frank Chapman's book that we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. The University of Central Florida was established in 1963 as Florida Technological University and has grown to have the largest student enrollment in the country. Holly Baker has this look at efforts to preserve the university's history through soundscaping. Robert Clark is a history professor at the University of Central Florida in Orlando, where he's pursuing a Ph.D. in text and technology. I recently talked to him about his historical soundscape study of the University of Central Florida's main campus in Orlando. Through his soundscape study of UCF, Bob Clark captures the sounds of daily life around campus. I've always been interested in sound. You know, I grew up in the mountains and you always heard the bugs and creek and, and music and everything, so I've always been interested in sound. And a couple of years ago in the Texan Technology Program, we had a sound class with Dr. Jonathan Beaver, who's actually my committee chair. And we set up recorders in the Arboretum in the natural spaces and started just recording sound just to see change over time and or hear change over time rather and uh, collect a lot of data. And we did collect a lot of data in, in a project that we called Liminal Space. And um, that's the threshold between man-made sound and the natural sound, what we call biophony, which is natural sound, and anthrophony, which is human-generated sound. And so I, I really sort of got into this idea of recording sound. And over the next couple of years, I've recorded hundreds of, of just sound walks where you just put on a recorder and walk through campus and everything. So when it came time for my dissertation project, I wanted to create a sound map of the main campus. 
The location of Bob Clark Soundscape Study, the University of Central Florida, is one of the largest universities in the United States. With nearly 70,000 students, the campus of the University of Central Florida is almost a city itself with its own unique soundscape. UCF is really a pedestrian campus. Um, we have three concentric rings that basically form the foundation, if you will, of the architectural layout. And when um, Charles Milliken first became the first president when they were designing the campus, one of his ideas was that it's easy to get lost in a sea of 15,000 students. And he wanted to, to design a campus where you could be part of a smaller community and create relationships that way. And that's why the village concept is how the university was laid out. While the University of Central Florida may seem like a city, Bob Clark points out that it's really more like a village due to the walkability of the campus. One of the unique things about the village concept like this is that you can get from any point to any point on campus within about a 10-minute walk. And I know because I think I've walked about 100 miles <laughs> during this. And one of the things I wanted to do is eventually compare that with a grid layout campus that has cars, and it's not easy to get from place to place. You may have to get in your car, like a University of Florida, to get to another classroom. You know, So that changes the sonic perception of a campus. And so from a land use standpoint, that interests me. And that's one of the things that I want to explore. Because it is a unique campus, or at least one of two, compared to the other one. So I, I want to know, how does that sound compared to traditional campuses? Bob Clark told me about some of the sounds that he's captured on campus. There's such a diversity of sound, especially like in, in front of the, the student union, like on a, any Tuesday or Thursday at, at noon, you've got all the tents set up with everybody trying to pitch their, their product or their idea or whatever, and it's just like, ah, it's like this cacophony of sound, you know. I've captured people playing music. I've captured people preaching <laughs> a lot uh, of all different religions, a lot of people wanting you to sign their petition for whatever various cause and just random conversations are just really super interesting to hear. <laughs> you know why I think it's particularly funny? Bob Clark's soundscape study of the University of Central Florida includes a website that will contain an interactive map and will also house the audio files featuring the sounds of daily life around campus. Bob Clark. First and foremost, I'm a historian. And I see this as a way to catalog change over time sonically. And I think that that is definitely within the realm of public history. Um, it'll be accessible to people. It won't just live in an archive somewhere. And it provides a sense of a representation of place. And I think a lot of public history does just that. When you talk about monuments or memorializations, that's public history. Sound is, I think it falls well within that realm of, of creating representation and meaning of place. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. 
Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and follow us on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.